to the City Church Podcast. We hope that you will be abundantly blessed by this message. If you would like to find out more about the city, please log on to our website, www.thecity.sg. Well, uh, it's been an interesting week. Yes, very interesting week. Very interesting week in Facebook world. And uh, stuff happened this week, and so... You know, it's, it's so, um, sometimes, you know, I feel pressured sometimes, you know, when, when um, things go on, like, you know, especially with uh, the recent ele- uh, election results and uh, people text me like, what, what do you think uh, God is saying or what is your opinion? And um, the truth is, most of the time, I'm not smart enough to have an opinion. I'm just like, uh, I, I don't know, you know, and, uh, <laughs> and, and it's so remarkable to see like how many closet politician friends I actually have. Like out of the thousands of Facebook friends I have, like a bunch of them can actually run for, for office, and yeah, a bunch of prophets. And so, uh, super duper fun, you know. Um, you know, I think the the subject of like whether there should be a division between church and state is a very debatable thing, you know, like should church leaders uh, comment on issues of the state or should church uh, spiritual leaders run the state? You know, it's a very debatable thing. And uh, to be honest, I don't have a, a firm opinion or a firm stand and neither does this church. But what is absolute though is that there needs to be a division between church and any form of hate. There needs to be a division between the church and any form of hate. And so I think for all of us, in the midst of this, and this is this is far beyond, you know, the, the our shores, you know. But um, I'm sure many of you have um, conversed and have spoken about this, you know, with different people, and you might have pe- different people with different opinions, stronger or or they're they're more zealous than you. But this is an opportunity for you and me, for the church globally, to model what Jesus did. Loving in spite of disagreement, loving in spite of um, different opinions. Amen? Amen? And so this is an opportunity. This is, this is a great opportunity for us to model Christ and to show the world what Jesus looks like, to show the world what Christians stand for. We stand for love above all else. So let's not see this as, as opposition. Let's not see this as persecution, but let's see this as an opportunity to shine the light of the gospel. Amen? Amen? Every dark situation is an opportunity to shine the light. Amen, amen. Well, uh, excited to be preaching. Incredibly nervous. I'm going to try a bunch of new things today, so uh, appreciate your response. Let's try that. Respond. Awesome. One of my favorite passages in the scripture would be uh, Luke 3. And in Luke 3, if we read um, somewhere down the middle, uh, there's the, the account of uh, the baptism of Jesus. And um, it's probably uh, the story that has the most pro- uh, impact on my life uh, apart from the crucifixion. And, and it goes like this. It goes, when all the people were baptized, it came to pass that Jesus also was baptized. And while he prayed, the heavens parted and the Holy Spirit descended in bodily form like a dove upon him. And a voice came from heaven which said, You are my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And this is, this is by far one of my favorite passages of Bible, one of my favorite stories. And I remember uh, many a yesteryear, I think that time Christine was still uh, without child. John was still single. PD still looks like PD. Uh, Jason and Cons weren't dating yet. And we all went to Australia together. Do you remember that? That was six years, five, six years ago. We all went to Australia together. And I remember I was uh, serving uh, national service then. Uh, and I, I remember it so clearly. Exo had appendicitis the, the day we flew up. You were in the hospital. And so uh, this was like, what, five, six years ago? Jinsei lost his money. <laughs> uh, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. And you went also, yeah. Great, great. There were a bunch of us. We all went to Australia. And uh, I, I remember I was serving national service then. And uh, I was uh, still trying to figure life out, figure Christianity out. And uh, I remember I really got into uh, Jesus culture at that time. Uh, someone uh, loaned me uh, a couple of the albums. And I was like, man, this, this music is phenomenal. Like Kim Walker was amazing. I think I had a, no, I don't think I had a crush on her because by then I was dating already. So, um, 
So, so I was listening to the music and then uh, I got introduced to Bethel and Bill Johnson. And at a point in time, I hadn't really heard much about Bill Johnson. Um, heard about him, but never heard him speak. Never heard any of the things he, he talked about. Never read any of the books. And I remember um, um, I was asked, like, do you want to go to um, Melbourne for the Planet Shakers conference? I was like, sure, why not? And so we, we all jumped on a plane and when I remember the first night we got there, we arrived late. And we were seated at like the highest point possible in the stadium. I think the air was like exceptionally thin there. I remember seeing birds run, flying around. And uh, we were at the highest point in the last row. And Bill Johnson spoke for the first night. And I remember he taught from this verse. And after he taught, I remember... I remember it so clearly, like he, he thought he prayed in Jesus' name, Amen. And then the band came on and did their thing. And as the band was going and the service was not uh, closed yet, I remember running out of the stadium and, uh, and going to the bookstore and buying everything that had the name Bill Johnson in it. Every single book. Even the ones that he wrote the forward to, I bought the book as well. So I bought like 15 books, I remember. And I devoured all of them because whatever he, he thought in that meeting, in that session, dramatically changed my life dramatically changed my life. And he thought from this verse. He thought three things that, that I still remember today. He said this. He said that, you, you, you read that, that third line. He said, he prayed and then the heavens parted and the Holy Spirit descended in bodily form like a dove upon him. And I've always like picture that, that scene up to that point as like the heavens went, ah, and then the Holy Spirit descended right upon Jesus. How many of you had that picture? Like, ah, and then it descended. But that word parted is the same word used to describe the veil being torn in two. Jewish tradition states that the veil was as thick as a human hand. It's, it's a thick, thick piece of cloth and it was violently ripped in two. And that was the same words used to describe the heavens parting. Can I put it to you that what you rip, you don't intend to put back together? The heavens were ripped open and they're still ripped today. We live under a literal, perpetual open heaven. And that dramatically changed my life when I heard that. I was like, I live under an open heaven. I have access to the things of the kingdom. All I have to do is reach up and grab it. That was the first point he brought up. And the second thing he said was, he said this, he said, the, the Holy Spirit descended upon Jesus like a dove. And then, we, I think we've all seen this analogy at some point, but the dove rested upon the shoulder of Jesus. Imagine if you were have had a bird sitting on you right now. Zhongwei owns birds. And he, he talks to birds. He's a bird whisperer. So, imagine having a, a bird on your shoulder, right? Okay, no, no leash, no nothing. You're not, the bird, bird is not glued on. And you don't want the bird to fly off. You want to keep the bird there. Let me use this. Is that mucus? No. <laughs> But is there, okay? How then would you live? How then would you move? Every move and every step you take will be made with the dove in mind. You don't want it to fly away. And so you're paying careful attention, not wanting this to fly away. And that speaks about the lifestyle of the believer, that what we do, what we say, how we act, how we treat each other, the things that we, we do in the private Everything has been made with that dove, the Holy Spirit in mind. Because we do not want Him to depart. We want Him to rest upon us. And that dramatically changed my life again. Because I've been so uh, used to like, putting up a church facade and neglecting, uh, pursuing the Lord from Monday to Saturday. I was so challenged in that meeting to live a life of integrity, of not wavering on the spiritual convictions I profess to uphold to on Sunday. I want that dove to rest. And then the third point he brought up, which impacted me, he said this, the Holy Spirit came upon Jesus. Right? Holy Spirit came upon Jesus. I've often wondered, Jesus is, the third, is one of the persons of the Trinity, right? Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. He is the Spirit of God, personified. Why then did He need the Holy Spirit to rest upon Him? 
And Bill said this, he said, that the Holy Spirit is in me for my sake, but He wants to come upon me for the sake of others. And we see this uh, uh, come into some form of manifestation in the next chapter in Luke 4, chapter 18, it says this. It says that the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And this is Jesus' inauguration speech, if you will. This is the, what he, he declared as he launched, as he started his ministry. He was quoting from Isaiah. He said this, he said, The Spirit of God has come upon me and anoint me to do these things. He wants to come upon you to change the world around you. That's the, that is why He pours out His Spirit on you. That is why we ask for the Spirit of God to come upon us. It's not for our own gratification, but it's for the impact, for the salvation of the world around us. Amen? It was from that point onwards that He began to preach the gospel. He would have said, raise the dead, cleanse lepers. If you allow me to this morning, I'd like to spend some time talking about that word, anointed. For most of us, when we think about the word anointing, it, it always is uh, used in the context of a feeling. Am I right? Like, oh, the worship leader today was so anointed because I feel the goosebumps and the, the tremors and the shivers. Or the preaching of the word today was so anointed. I laugh so hard. I cry so hard. I shake on the floor. It's so anointed, right? And we use it in a, in a, in a sense of like a feeling, right? But the word anointed, is, it goes so much more, so far beyond just a physical feeling. It's a term of empowerment. In the Old Testament, kings, judges, and high priests were identified and anointed for their assignment. And the word anointing loosely translates to smearing with oil. And that is what would literally happen to these men of significance. They would be anointed and trust into their God-given assignment and destinies. David himself was anointed with a horn of oil. But don't be mistaken, the oil isn't the anointing. It is symbolic. It's a prophetic act of the Spirit of God coming upon that individual and empowering him for the assignment. These men, these, these men were anointed for their assignment. Can I get an amen? And this is my favorite definition of what it means to be anointed. It, it says this, To be anointed is to be empowered with special favor for a greater responsibility. Let me say it again. To be anointed is to be empowered with special favor for a greater responsibility. Note that it's not God does you special favors. You are given a favor. When the Queen of Sheba encountered Solomon, and saw the, the splendor of Solomon's kingdom, and saw how the Lord prospered him. She, she said to him, she said, Solomon, the Lord has favored you greatly because of his love for Israel. He has given you these things. He's given you wisdom. He's given you insight. He has prospered you because of his love for the people around you. If the favor of God ends with you, it has missed its intended target. Its target is the people around you. And I like to empower with special favor for a greater responsibility. In the Old Testament, only selected men were anointed with oil. In the New Testament, we are anointed when the Spirit comes upon us. The Spirit of the Lord has come upon me to anoint me. That's why He comes upon you. That's the great promise of the day of Pentecost, that He will pour His Spirit to come upon you and me to anoint us, to empower us for the work of the kingdom. It's no longer just select individuals carrying the weight of responsibility. He desires all of us to bear the anointing because he says that he desires for his spirit to be poured out on all flesh. Not just ministers, not just leaders, not just kings and priests, but on all flesh. The game has changed. Is no longer revolved around certain select individuals, but now you and I, the church, we bear that anointing, we bear that special favor, we bear that responsibility. 
Let me prove it to you. First John, let's have, we have two verses up. It says, you have an anointing from the Holy One, verse 20. Verse 27, it says, the anointing which you have received from Him abides in you. You have an anointing. Say, I am anointed. I am anointed. Say again, I am anointed. Come on, man. So now that we know we have anointing, how does that relate to you and me in a modern context? Right? Do we then rule a nation? <laughs> do we then do priestly duties? What does it mean for you and me? What does it mean to be anointed, to have the Spirit come upon you? What does that translate to? I want, you, I want to point all of us to another verse in Acts chapter 10. It says this. It says, God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, who went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. That was why Jesus was anointed. He was anointed to do good, to bring healing to those who were oppressed by the devil. Many times we look at uh, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the infilling of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit coming upon the individual, and we are, lo- we are looking for evidence, right? And most of the time we say, oh, the evidence of someone being filled and having the Holy Spirit upon him is that he speaks in tongues. But can I put it to you that there's so much more that we ought to look at. Jesus said, in, in, in Acts, sorry, in Acts it speaks about Jesus, that when the Spirit of God came upon Jesus, he went about doing good and healing. What if we have so downplayed what the Holy Spirit should look like in our lives to just speaking in tongues that we've completely missed out on these works. We've completely missed out on these things that you and I are called to do. What if the main evidence of a person being filled and having the Holy Spirit upon him is that we do good and we heal the sick? What if we need to change the standards to which we attribute a person being filled with the Holy Spirit to biblical standards? What if we need to change? What if we need to lift them up? We are not defined by our own experience. These standards are not defined by what experience. They ought to be defined by biblical standards. And the Bible says this, when He comes upon you, you will do good. You will heal the sick. Amen, amen. Amen. See, I believe there are specific anointings for specific tasks, but we have to recognize that all that the Lord has us do in this life, it ties back to that, that thing, doing good benefiting those around us, impacting the world around us. And it's so interesting. I want to zoom in on that word doing good. That, the Greek word for that word doing good is actually the word philanthro. Everybody say philanthro. And it's where we get the word philanthropy from. And philanthro actually breaks up into two separate words. Philos for loving and anthropos for human being. If I were to take it a step further, philanthro means to benefit, to love mankind to benefit mankind. The evidence of the Spirit of God coming upon a believer is that he or she seeks to benefit mankind. He or she seeks to do good for the world around him or her. This is the anointing that we have received. The favor that we have now received is for doing good and bringing miracles. Can I put it to you that as a church, not this institution, but as a church, the people, you and I as individuals, we have to begin to develop a vision for doing good. My dream church is not a church full of initiatives and members backing those initiatives. My dream church is uh, a church full of people who are initiated and bear the responsibility of bringing good to their world. I'm not interested in coming up with more programs. I'm interested in you being empowered with the Spirit of God to bring the realities of the kingdom to your world until the kingdoms of the earth become the kingdoms of our God. That is my dream church. And that is the church I believe Jesus wants us to build. It's biblical. It's not just Andre. Amen? The Bible says this. The Bible says this is one of my favorite verses. It says, without vision, men perish. How many of you are familiar with that? Without vision, man perish. And uh, if you are like a, a nerd like me and you study the original uh, language, you'll realize that that word vision is, is not uh, complete. If you were to do it in the original translation, it says, it says that without 
prophetic vision, men perish. It's not just vision that comes from you and me when we come up with good ideas and strategy. It's prophetic vision. It comes from the Lord. And we all know that prophecy is that communication, that dialogue with the Lord, right? And if you are a believer who actually speaks and talks to God, you'll realize that He is always about people. He is always about the world. He is always about reconciling those who are lost to Him. I put it to you that you cannot develop a prophetic vision that does not revolve around the betterment of the world around you. And it says this, without prophetic vision, you and I, we perish. You and I, we go off track. You and I, we miss our intended purpose. It seems so big, this idea of changing the world. It's like a youth ministry thing. But how many of you know that if every believer thinks and functions in that manner, it's no longer a pipe dream, it's no longer insurmountable. It's very possible. There are over 2 billion people who profess to be Christians in the world today. How their lifestyles are led, I don't know. 2 billion. If every single one of us makes it a goal to get 3 people saved, We'll get this whole thing done. Simple mathematics, 2 billion times 3, 6 billion. I know it's very simplistic, but humor me today. My sermon title today is this, Bending History, Making a Difference in Our World, Here and Now. I know it's a very odd title, but it comes from my favorite quote. Let's have my quote up. It goes like this. It says, Few would have the greatness to bend history itself, but each of us can work to change a small portion of events, and in the total of all these acts will be written the history of this generation. That is a great quote. Few of us will have the ability, will have the opportunity to change history all by ourselves, but together, as a community, as the church, locally and globally, we can work together and through small events that each of us endeavor to bring the goodness of God into, we can shape history together. We can bend history. I believe it. Pastor Daniel I said an amazing line uh, last week. I don't know if you caught it. He said this. He said, you weren't saved by works. You were saved Four works. I think that line is amazing. I'm going to say it again. You weren't saved by works. You were saved for works. As a church, we fundamentally believe that every believer is called to be a minister of the gospel right, right where they're at. The Bible just doesn't draw a distinction as to who the Great Commission is applicable to. It doesn't draw that distinction for you and me. And one of the most dysfunctional teachings I've come, I, I believe have, has crept into the church in the 21st centuries is that in a church, the church congregation is divided into two categories. It's divided into people who are actively doing the work of the kingdom and financiers. People who fund and people who back, people who give money. I'm not against that. You know, it's, it's really why we have these things we have today, why we have a, a space. But how many of you know that simply financing, simply putting money isn't uh, the, the whole picture, isn't the, the whole commission? And the Bible just doesn't draw a distinction. I think it's a disservice for me to you if I were to tell you that all you have to do is give money and you don't have to do anything. The Bible just doesn't draw a distinction. The Great Commission is applicable to all. If it isn't, Jesus would have gone to the rich young ruler and raised funds <laughs> instead of telling him to sell everything. Right? We have to be moved with compassion. We have to be mobilized to do this work. I'm making sense to you. Acts chapter 1, verse 8, you know, it, it, it talks about this. It says that when the Spirit comes upon the church, we will be His witnesses, right? We heard about that verse last week. And sometimes when I, I read that, that passage, I picture uh, Jesus on the stand in a courtroom and uh, He's being trialed for being a, a Messiah, right? Jesus 
are you the Messiah? And we are all in, in a corner and we are all his witnesses. And then we begin to testify. He is the Messiah. He has done these good things in my life. He has changed me, he has transformed me. And that's sometimes how I picture being a witness looks like. You know, when, when he, he comes under question, I get to stand up and I, I get to go, no. I vouch for him, no. He is good. He has done these things in my life. But can I ask you a question this morning? What if the tables are turned? What if you and I are placed on a stand in a courtroom and they're trying to convict us of being a Christian? Will the evidence be sufficient to utterly convince the jury and the judge that you are absolutely a Christian? If you and I are put on a stand right now, will there be enough evidence to convince the world that you are indeed Christian, that you are indeed one who follows the Messiah, one who follows His teachings. We need to be challenged in that area. Amen? We have to recognize that we are on earth for a purpose. We have a a heavenly mandate and assignment. You see, I really love that we have opportunities to learn more about God, opportunities to encounter Him, to know Him. But I have to say this really delicately. We cannot confuse our heavenly reward with our earthly assignment. Our eternal reward is that we get to sit at His feet, we get to love Him, we get to worship Him, we get to gaze upon Him all the days of our life, all through eternity. But we have to recognize that we are on earth for a purpose for an assignment. We cannot confuse our eternal reward with our earthly assignment. You and I, we have an assignment from heaven today, a purpose to bring the reality of the kingdom to our world. That's our earthly assignment. Analogy I'll give you is that if, if I was playing in a World Cup, right, a World Cup match FIFA, I know minus the fats, put a six-pack there and visualize. And so uh, I'm playing the, 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 the soccer game. I'm playing soccer, right? And this is a World Cup match. This is the finals. You know, uh, we're down to the last minute and uh, they have the World Cup trophy up on the stands and it's up there. Everyone can see it. And I'm, I, I have the ball and I'm dribbling up towards the goal. And instead of shooting it at the goal, I turn, I face the trophy and I kick the ball towards the trophy. Pretty ridiculous, right? What is my assignment at that point? My assignment at that point is to Score a goal to kick the ball into the net. Am I making sense to you? That is the reward. But that cannot be your pursuit when you're here. Your primary, your primary function is to bring the kingdom of God to your world. The Great Commission. Am I making sense? Yes. It's interesting that Jesus was called Jesus Christ. And uh, this might be revelation for some of you, but uh, Christ is not his last name. It's not Joseph Christ, Mary Christ, begets Jesus Christ. (laughs) I know, I found that out maybe a few years ago. Embarrassing. But uh, Jesus Christ, and the word Christ comes from the word Christos, say Christos. And Christos literally means the anointed one. The anointed one. How many of you know that the spirit of the age is called the anti-Christ spirit? Not the anti-Jesus spirit, the anti-Christ spirit. And this spirit of the age that we war against, that the book of Revelations talk about, is anti-anointing. Why would the devil war against the anointing? Why, why is he so adamant? to war against this, this thing, this Christ, this anointing. Can I put it to you that maybe when the anointing comes upon a believer and a believer begins to act upon uh, the, the things that the anointing has released and empowered on the believer and he begins to do good and he begins to heal the sick and he begins to bring the kingdom of God to his world that is extremely detrimental, is a great threat to the kingdom of darkness. And that's why he wars against it. Am I making sense to you? Could it be that it's because in the anointing is the potential to change and transform the world as we know it? 
The Spirit of God wants to come upon you, anoint you, to make things better around you. Amen? When the boy offered his five loaves and two fishes to Jesus, I don't think he could predict the impact that he would bring. It was a simple act of obedience, a simple act of bringing what he could to the table, what he could to the hands of Jesus. And what amazes me about the story is that Jesus used everything. He used every single morsel that the boy could bring. I'm of the opinion that Jesus could have multiplied food with one loaf and one fish. Jesus could even create food if he wanted to. But he used everything the boy brought to his table. And he can do the same for you and me. Whatever we deem insignificant, whatever we deem as non, uh, doesn't, that it doesn't add value to the kingdom, doesn't add value to the ministry, whatever it is, he can use it for his glory. Every past mistake, every wrongdoing, he can use it if you're willing to bring it to his table. Amen? I'm going to do something a bit different uh, this morning. In closing, I want to share three stories. Everybody say three stories. And uh, these three stories are some of my favorite stories. And I picked these three stories on purpose because these stories account for the Spirit of God anointing individuals who are not functioning in a church ministry setting. I think many times we hear sermons like these, we read about certain passages, and if you are not called to a full-time vocational ministry role, you disassociate yourself from these calls and these giftings. Am I right? I think there are, like, there are great prophetic voices that are called to function in companies, in, in boardrooms, and the sad thing is that they read about these, these passages and they go, no, the prophets only go to the church, they only do the church thing, and they disassociate themselves from the gifts and the call that the Lord has installed for them. The anointing is for you and me, it's for all flesh, not just leaders, not just preachers. And I picked these three stories to inspire you. And, you know, the Re- book of Revelation says that the testimony of Jesus is spirit of prophecy. As I read these stories, I pray that it will prophesy into your life. It will prophesy into uh, your, your situation, into your setting, that you may be empowered to bring the reality of Jesus to your world. Amen? First person I want to talk about today is a guy named Matt McPherson. Say, Matt McPherson. Okay. Just to let you guys know, I'll be looking at my notes for most of the time because I'm reading a story, so I'm still engaging with you, okay? Mac McPherson is known as a man with great passion for God. He felt called to minister the gospel through music and leading in worship, and with that, equipping churches to do the same. However, after being handed a $15 check for a weekend of ministry, he realized that it would be a very challenging way to support his family. That's an understatement. However, he still had hopes of serving and sowing to ministries, and he turned to the only thing he knew how to do, building compound bows. A compound bow is bow and arrow, and is used primarily for hunting. Matt grew up with a love for archery and hunting, and sought to build a better bow. One night as he was sleeping, God uh, began to, to, to encounter him with his Holy Spirit, and God spoke to him something that would forever changed his life. He said, I know every answer to every problem in the world. If men would only ask me, I would give them the answers. And Matt was completely overwhelmed with the promise and the sense of awe he had for God in that moment. He dropped to his knees and cried out to God about the things that concerned him. He knew hundreds of ways not to build a bowl, but he wanted to take God's invitation to ask for answers for any problems. Several weeks later, at about 3 a.m. in the morning, he woke up seeing a piece of paper suspended before his eyes. It looked as though it was torn from a notebook. On it was a sketch of a compound bow revealing a new concept. When his wife Sherry asked him what he was doing, he said, I think I'm having a vision. He was. In response to his prayer, God gave him the initial concept for what would eventually launch Matthew's Archery Company, changing the archery industry forever. Today, Matthew's Archery takes account for 90% of all bowls sold in America. But it did not stop there. Matt McPherson received revelations after revelations and to date owns at least 20 patents, some of which are still pending. A number of which comes from another McPherson innovation, the McPherson guitar. 
the MacPherson guitar. The MacPherson guitar is one of the most sought-after guitars, not just in Christian music, but in all of music. It is, you, you can tell it's a MacPherson guitar because the sound hole is not in the middle, it's off to the side. How many of you have seen a guitar like that before, yeah? The MacPherson guitar. And that came in a dream as well. And MacPherson's dream of equipping churches to worship came in a literal sense. He equipped them with a God-breathed instrument that is of great quality and excellence. Today, Mac McPherson and his wife travels around the world, ministering the gospel through music, as well as funding multiple ministries. He used his only gift, making quality bows, and has produced fruit far beyond his expectations. The takeaway from the story I want to leave with you this morning is this. He uses your little to do far beyond what you can possibly expect. Buy a McPherson guitar. Just $10,000. <laughs> the next uh, 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 group I want to talk about is, is uh, they're called the Artisans of Constantinople. Very chim. A number of them are unknown, but they are responsible for the art and beauty of the Church of Constantinople, which is known to bear the greatest beauty the world has seen in that day. They painted amazing works and built structures of great beauty because they saw that the Creator was worthy of more than just a dull building, but of a work of art. And these people remind me of a man by the name of Bezalel, who was a craftsman uh, building the tabernacle of Moses. And he was the first man okay, that the Bible accounts for that was filled with the Holy Spirit. And this is what the Bible says. The Bible says that Bezalel was filled with the Holy Spirit to perform all manners of craftsmanship. He was anointed to be creative to do art. Does that just blow your box of what the Spirit of God can do? That the evidence of the Holy Spirit is not just tied towards speaking in tongues, but it, it empowers you for your, uh, for your assignment. It anoints you for what you're called to do. And this was so for the artisans of Constantinople. They were known to be people who were deeply passionate for the Lord. I want to read to you a story of uh, a nation who was impacted by this group of people. The story goes, a thousand years ago, Prince Vladimir the Great, the pagan monarch of Kiev, was looking for a new religion to unify the Russian people. Towards, the, towards this end, Prince Vladimir sent out envoys to investigate the great faiths from the neighboring realms. When the delegations returned, they gave the prince their reports. Some had discovered religions that were dual and austere. Others encountered faiths that were abstract and theoretical. But the envoys who had investigated Christianity in the capital of Constantinople reported finding a faith characterized by such transcendent beauty that they did not know if they were in heaven or on earth. They encountered such beauty that they didn't even know if they were on earth anymore. It's a heavenly beauty. What if we have artisans, we have creatives in our midst that can produce a beauty that's been only revealed in the heavenly realms because they have reached up and they've seen what is in heaven and they're bringing it to earth, bring the reality of the kingdom to earth. Transcendent beauty. And this was a report from one of the envoys. It says that, then we went to Constantinople and they led us to the place where they worship their God. And we knew not whether we were in heaven or earth. For on earth there is no such vision nor beauty. And we do not know how to describe it. We only know that God dwells among men. We cannot forget that beauty. And this was a, a pagan envoy. Upon receiving the report from Constantinople delegation of the unearthly beauty they had witnessed in Christian worship, Prince Vladimir adopted Christianity as a new faith for the Russian people. What impressed the envoys and persuaded the prince to embrace Christianity was not its apologetics or ethics, but its aesthetics, its beauty. Thus, we might say it was beauty that brought salvation to the Russian people. 900 years later, the great Russian writer Freuder Dorsky coined the expression, beauty will save the world. I don't think the artists knew that their work would lead to the salvation of a nation. They were faithful and excellent in their craft and in that revealed the beauty of the creator. Creatives, designers, filmmakers, don't underestimate the power of your work 
perhaps some wedding album or wedding video, you create saves a marriage which allows someone to be born who goes on to greatness. Perhaps some non-profit video you create becomes instrumental in an organization raising funds that saves thousands of children from sex trafficking. Perhaps some movie you make inspires millions of people to change their eating habits and therefore saves countless lives. You just never know. Don't doubt the value of what you do or the meaning of your place on this planet. Lives may depend on it. The takeaway I have for you from this story is that just because you may not be visible, it does not mean you're not valuable. These artisans, they are not named even till today. But can we all agree that the work that they did was absolutely valuable? Change the nation. Last story I have for you, my favorite one. It's about a man named George Washington Carver. George Washington Carver. Carver was an American botanist and inventor. He was born into slavery in the 1860s, and despite the circumstances surrounding him, he revolutionized agricultural science with his cultivation of soil and reaching crops, such as peanuts and soybeans, to revive earth that had been depleted of nutrients from cotton farming. And these, these, these lands that were used for cotton farming were declared dead. They, they could not produce any crops and there was a, a massive problem with lack of food. And, and he saw that there was a great need for usable land for crops and devoted himself to finding a solution. He saw a problem and was determined to fix it. Carver was known to sit in his laboratory and invite the Spirit of God to come. And he'll begin to dialogue with God. And God will reveal to him solutions to the world's problems, and with that, the secrets of creation. He saw a problem and he sought the Lord for a solution. Many times you and me, we look at the problems and the issues of the world and we lament and complain. Worse still, we come into agreement with these things instead of going to the Lord and recognizing that we could very well play a part in solving these issues. I believe there are solutions to the world's problems locked up in the unuttered prayers of unbelieving believers. I'll say that again. I believe there are solutions to the world's problems that are locked up in the unuttered prayers of unbelieving believers. Carver was just a man, yet God used him to solve a great problem because he prayed. Carver goes on to discover over 100 users for the sweet potato and 300 users for the peanut, including beverages, cosmetics, dyes and paints, medicines and food products. He conducted numerous research projects that also contributed to medicine and other fields and used his influence to champion the relief of racial tensions. His breakthrough gave way to modern-day biotechnology. Because of his breakthrough with peanuts, we have peanut butter, by extension, Reese's Pieces, and by extension, Nutella. Now you're a big fan of him. <laughs> oh yeah, you just solved a few problems. Uh, Nutella! <laughs> but the story doesn't stop there. On, April, on Friday, April 2nd, 2004, ABC News honoured a man who at that time was 91 years old. The news program was running a regular segment called Person of the Week. Usually the honorees' accomplishment are listed in advance and by the time the name is announced, most people would have guessed the identity of this week's recipient. In this instance, however, the pronouncement left many viewers puzzled. And so, our person of the week, the anchorman finally said, is Norman Borlock. One can only imagine the frowns. Who? Who did he say? Norman? What was his last name? Yet, yeah, despite our unfamiliarity, Norman Borlock is a man who personally was responsible for drastically and dramatically changing the world in which we live. In the early 1940s, Norman hybridized high-yield, disease-resistant corn and wheat for arid climates. Through the years, it has now been calculated that Norman's work saved more than 2 billion lives from famine. Actually, it was never reported, but the anchorman was misinformed. It was not Norman who saved the 2 billion people, though very few caught the mistake. It was Henry Wallace. 
Henry Wallace was the vice president of the United States under Franklin Roosevelt. Over his four terms, Roosevelt had three different vice presidents, and the second man to serve was Henry Wallace. Wallace was the former Secretary of Agriculture who, after his one term as vice president, was dumbed from the ticket in favor of Truman. While Wallace was vice president, however, he used the power of that office to create a station in Mexico whose sole purpose was to hybridize corn and wheat for arid climates. He hired a young man named Norman Bollock to run it. So Norman won the Nobel Prize and was awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom. But considering the connection, it was really Henry Wallace that saved the two billion people. Or was it George Washington Carver? When Carver was 19 years old and a student at Iowa State University, he had a diary science professor who, on Saturday and Sunday afternoons, would allow his six-year-old boy to go on botanical expeditions with the brilliant student. It was Carver who took that boy and instilled in him a love for plants and a vision for what they could do for humanity. It was Carver who pointed six-year-old Henry Wallace's life in a specific direction. Long before he ever became Vice President of the United States, it's amazing to contemplate, isn't it? So maybe it should have been Carver, Person of the Week. Or was it the farmer from Diamond, Missouri? His name was Moses, and he lived in a slave state. He didn't believe in slavery. This made him target for psychopaths like the Knights Raiders, who were the, pre the present-day KKK, one cold January night. Raiders rode through Moses' farm. The outlaws burned a bun, shot several people, and dragged off a woman named... Mary Washington, who refused to let go of her infant son, George. The farmer tracked down the bandits and arranged a meeting. There, the farmer traded the only horse they had left on their farm for what the outlaws threw him in a dirty burlap bag. As the bandits thundered off on their horses, Moses fell to his knees there. Alone on that dark winter night, the farmer pulled from the back a cold, naked, almost dead baby boy. Quickly, he jerked open his own coat and his shirt, and placed the child next to his skin. There they committed to that tiny human being and to each other that they would care for him. That is how Moses and Susan Carver came to raise that little baby, George Washington. So when you think about it, maybe it was the farmer from Missouri who saved the two billion people. Is there an ending to the story? Exactly who was it that saved the two billion people? Is there a specific person to whom we could point how many lives will we need to examine in order to determine whose actions saved two billion people? How far forward will you need to go in life to show the difference you make? There are generations yet unborn whose very lives will be shifted and shaped by the moves you make and the actions you take today and tomorrow and the next day and the next. Every single thing you do matters. You have been created as one of a kind. On the planet Earth, there has never been one like you and there will never be again. Your spirit, your thoughts, your feelings, your ability to reason and act all exist in no one else. The rarities that make you special are no mere incident or quirk of faith. You have been created in order that you might make a difference. You have within you the power to change the world. Know that your actions cannot be hoarded, save for later or used selectively. By your hands... Millions, possibly billions of lives will be altered, caught up in a chain of events begun by you this day. The very beating of your heart has meaning and purpose. Your action has value far greater than silver or gold. Your life and what you do with it today matters forever. can be a sim simple act, simple step of obedience, aimed towards the betterment of your world around you. And who knows? That could spark off a chain of events. What if the Lord has, is calling you to adopt, foster a baby boy today, and that boy goes on, get, gets a stellar education, and goes on to be a person of influence, brings greatness to the world around him? What if, what if we will never know, truly, unless you and I take a step? to do that. Why then? Because you and I, we've been anointed by the Spirit of God to do good, to better, to benefit mankind, to bring the reality of the kingdom of God to the world around us. Can we all stand?
You enjoy that? Yes? Like the stories? How many of you have a dream in your heart that, um, that the Lord has put in, in, in you, um, you know, maybe when you're, when you're younger or um, some years ago, and that dream that you have is, is a dream to change the world? How many of you have, have, have that dream or have like things that you want to do that you find uh, uh, incredibly hard, insurmountable? incredibly difficult to add on. You, you need uh, so many things to fall in line before that dream can happen. How many of you have that impossible dream? Yeah? Can I put it to you this morning that it starts with a simple step? It starts with a heart that longs to better the world that longs to change it, that longs to impact it, that longs to bring Jesus into dark situations, it starts there. And whatever spark that is in you, that has maybe uh, uh, dialed down through time, through uh, different uh, popular opinion, through the systems of this world, I speak to that spark right now. I call it to come into flame right now in Jesus' name. I ask for the wind of the Holy Spirit to begin to blow through this place and begin to, begin to ignite fresh fire in the hearts of people, a fire, a passion, a zeal to see the world change. God, I, I ask that you'll even begin to renew minds right now. Every false mindset, every belief system that does not that is not filled with hope for the world, that is not filled with promise. I command these belief systems to fall in the name of Jesus, that your people will be one of hope, there will be one of great promise, there will be one of great fire and zeal that hopes and believes that the world can be changed, the world can be bettered through the existence of the church, through your Holy Spirit. Ladies and gentlemen, we live by faith and not by sight. We profess to be ones who pursue this thing we call the Christian faith. Can I put it to you that faith that is not present in light of an impossible situation is not functional at all. Sometimes you just got to be surrounded by insurmountable obstacles, by tasks, by dreams far bigger than your ability. And that's where faith kicks in. That's where your faith is in function.